Hello, good morning, good afternoon, and good night to all those who end up joining me in these dark woods for this, The Great Journey Podcast, and I'm your trail guide, Luke Keish. Here we go down the strange, bizarre, and spooky paths and trails of the unusual happenings and people which fill our world. So, would you kindly grab your thermoses and fill them up, and we'll head out for this week's trail on megachurches and televangelists. But before we can head out, we have to pay the toll for the undertaker's fee, and this trail's fee is... Jesus walks into an inn. He tosses three nails on the counter and says, Can you put me up for a night? Now for this week's trail, I have four campfires. The first is a preface to mega churches and some of the things that they can get away with. Then I go over the shady televangelist, mainly the top one, specifically looking at Cephalo Dollar and Kenneth Copeland. Also, I will go into the tax evasion and tax protester, Kent Hovid. Then the convicted scam artist, Jim Baker and false faith healer and scam artist Peter Popoff. Then I will finish with my thoughts over the mega churches and the people I bring up. Then for the mythological minute, I go to North America for specifically the Lakota Sax tribe mythology. So let's get into this week's trail. So the first campfire is the preface. And with that, I will define megachurches. But megachurches don't have a strict definition, but the Hartford Institute for Religious Research and some other universities classify megachurches as churches with more than 2,000 people in a weekly attendance, and nothing else is needed to make these churches megachurches. These churches can have multiple church locations all falling under one name and still be considered one overall church as long as they have a high attendance. The concept of mega churches started in the 1800s with the Metropolitan Tabernacle Evangelical Church with 6,000 people auditorium and inaugurated in 1861 in London by Charles S. Paragon. Then the first megachurch in the U.S. was Angulus Temple, a 5,300-person auditorium, and was inaugurated in 1923 in Los Angeles by Aim Sampi and M. Merson. Currently in the U.S., the Hartford Institute carries out a lot of 
academic studies on megachurches pertaining to the attendance rate, finances, what they preach, and the churches themselves, and even non-megachurches send financial statements and other documents to this institute for some form of transparency since they don't have to publicly record their records with the IRS. With the Hartford Institute, they also survey the U.S., and there they reported 1,650 Protestant megachurches, and 50 churches had exceeding attendance over 10,000 people, with the largest church having over 43,000 people weekly. Some of these churches are the Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, with 25,900 people in an average weekly attendance, Gateway Church in South Lake, Texas, with 31,550 people per weekly attendance, North Point Ministries in Alaharta, Georgia, with 40,555 average attendance, and Life Church in Oklahoma, with 43,500 people for weekly attendance. Also, the majority of megachurches in America are located in the Sun Belt, which is from California to Texas to Georgia to Florida. Then, these megachurches, it's not just one location that these churches have. They have multiple sites or satellite locations to get more attendance and to be able to spread their messages over a wider area, like life.church, which has 30 locations over the U.S., getting 85,000 people per week. They have one of the biggest spreads of locations compared to other megachurches, which might have 5 to 10 satellites, but nowadays with live streaming or video ceremonies being more common to reach people that aren't in your general area, it's easier for them to get larger numbers without having a established location. Now to touch on the theology of these places, which primarily is evangelical preaching, with over a thousand churches stating their denomination as evangelical, then around 500 others stated theirs as Pentecostal, Sikul, Seeker, Charismatic, Moderate, and Missional Christianity. Then additionally, they strongly emphasize at all these churches personal Bible study, prayer, devotions, abstaining from sex, and family devotion. Now to talk about the average income of these churches and how it is used and is based off independent and self-reporting since churches and church-affiliated organizations don't need to file taxes or income taxes with the IRS at any point depending on their status. But some churches, like I said before, report their finances to various organizations like Life.Church, who reported in 2018 their financial information to Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, with Pastor Craig Gorskell, who brought in $143.4 million in cash and non-cash donations, and $281 million in total assets that year alone. And most megachurches with a average audience over 2,000 people per week, the pastor's average salary is from 75000 to 
$147,000 and as his attendance gets higher the salaries grow as well and are also affected by the total budget of the churches with total budgets for smaller churches for pe people with an average of 2000 to 5000 weekly attendance have a budget of 1 to 2 million dollars and larger churches can get budgets of 10 million or more per fiscal year Typically, the budget is split up five ways at average megachurches. After the pastor's salary is taken out, half goes to paying for staff costs, and on average, there are 11 full-time and four part-time ordained clergy and 33 full-time and 27 part-time administrative workers or program staff and other staff to make up a full church staff. Then the rest of the budget is allocated to building operations, program support, missions, and and between these the budget is split pretty evenly. Also, most of the data collected to determine this and was compiled by Warren Bird, PhD, a research director at Hartford Institute, and Scott Thuma, PhD and professor of psychology at the Hartford Institute, and was based off data collected by average megachurches who were willing to disclose information and is also a good baseline, but now is to go through some of the outliers in the megachurch realm since the size of their churches aren't based on attendance, but rather their pastor's net worth which is also self-reported with most of these preachers also preaching a prosperity gospel to basically get money for success and these groups don't openly report their financial documents to a third-party organization for transparency or the IRS because of their status and also I'm using this list basically to give a broad overview of all of them while particularly taking out a few to talk about that have had criminal histories and later on when we get into the three individuals I mentioned earlier that will give us a pretty good prelude into the type of people that they were running with before they lost their status as megachurches or televangelist preachers. And one more thing to cover in the preface before moving on to the televangelist and other people, and that is the prosperity gospel which is primarily practiced by a lot of these televangelist preachers and which relies heavily on money and monetary status and isn't a specific term since it can be practiced differently per church and per preacher but most rely on the pastor telling the people of his congregation to send in money to the church to sow your faith and what that basically is is when you send in money you will get tenfold back in the future in some way sometimes mystically, sometimes through your bank account directly, or through indirect means. And in all cases, they all end up having you send in money, and some people, like we'll talk about later, will send you oils, fake holy water, prayer cloths, or other cheap stuff depending on your donation size. And this preaching style or gospel type of style also helps the preachers justify their luxury items that they have and the extravagant homes that they have and the amount of wealth that they have since they view it as the more money that they have the more wealth that they have it shows how much in God's favor that they are and how strong their faith is and that's basically the only general stuff that I need to cover with the prosperity gospel type of bullshit that these guys like to practice in and talk about and preach and next we will be getting into the tv preachers or the televangelist preachers
And like I said, this will be our second campfire over Tevilangelist Preachers or TV Preachers. And this is kind of more of a general list going over some quick facts, basically just their net worth and what they have particularly. There will be two individuals on this list particularly that I will take a moment to clarify a little bit more and go into a little bit more in depth since they've had a criminal history or they have had something in their past that just kind of smells weird and kind of seems a little weird. And again, at a future date, I might go into depth with more of these Tevilangelists in the future, but for now, I just wanted to focus on the three gentlemen I talk about later because they have definite crimes against them. They have been in jail and they've been convicted of certain things that we will get into later. But with these, the first one I will talk about is Joyce Meyer. She started Life in the Word Ministry in 19. 85 then began a tv show enjoying everyday life in 1995 when she was 74 she started traveling for speaking engagements with a private jet that she bought in 2004 which she also listed her assets that year which listed her assets and her husband's assets were all paid for by the ministry including a $10 million jet and a several million dollar home and a $107,000 Mercedes. After this, she received criticism and told news outlets that she planned to reduce her salary and reduce the use of ministry funds, but in 2018, her net worth was still stated at $8 million. Next is T.D. Jakes, who founded the Potter House, a non-denominational megachurch, and does ceremonies on Trinity Broadcasting Network and other religious channels. He also accompanied President George W. Bush to an area during the cleanup of Hurricane Tr Katrina in 2005 and spoke at President Barack Obama's inauguration in 2009. Then he spoke on Oprah in 2012 about him drawing income from his mega churches, books that he wrote, and the production of movies. Also in 2019, he had an estimated net worth of $18 million. Next is Franklin Graham. He's the son of famous pastor Billy Graham, and Franklin took over the Billy Graham Evangelical Association, becoming the CEO and president. Then he authored several books and went on several speaking tours after taking over, and continued to do speaking engagements still. He was criticized in the news for his statements after 9-11 about Islam, and then again for his homosexual statements against then Democrat presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, B-U-T-T-I-G-I-E-G. Also in 2017, his net worth was estimated at $25 million, and he self-reported it that year as $10 million before the estimate came out. Fourth is Rick Warren, who founded Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California in 1980 and currently has 20,000 people for weekly attendance. He also has written a book and claims him and his wife live on 10% of their income and donate the rest to various charities. Rick told Forbes, I drive a 12-year-old Ford. I live in the same house for the last 22 years, bought my watch at Walmart, and I don't own a boat or a jet. But Forbes states, no financial documents show the salary claims that he has and states that his net worth in 2016 was at $25 million. 
Next is Billy Graham, who was the father of Franklin Graham. Billy was one of the first celebrity pastors preaching on a broadcast network that had TV stations and radio stations. Then in 1950, he founded the Billy Graham Evangelical Association in Minneapolis. He was also an advisor to President Richard Nixon, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, and preached alongside Martin Luther King Jr., particularly on a few occasions. He also wrote three books in total and had a reported net worth of $25 million. but he died in February 2018 at the age of 99. Next is Cephalo Dollar, and he will be a man I will talk about a little bit more in depth. So first, he is married to Tifa Dollar, and they have five children together. He also founded the World Changers Church International in College Park, Georgia in 1986 and moved to a main building in 1995 called the World Dome, which seats 8,500 people and costed $20 million to build. Then his church expanded. After this, he also created the Cephalo Dollar Ministries. Arrow Records and leased Lowe's Paradise Theater in the Bronx for a new church. And as of 2007, the last report Dollar gave stated the church had 30,000 members and 70 million in revenue per year. Also, he's known to own two Rolls Royces, two Rolls Royces a private jet, a million dollar home in Atlanta, Georgia, a $2.5 million home in Demersk, New Jersey, and a $2.5 million Manhattan home. And in 2012, he ended up selling it for $3.7 million. Cephalo also refused to disclose his salary or any financial documents to a independent organization and he also had an instant instance when he asked his church particularly every individual member for $300 each for a $60 million Gulfstream G650 then he came under an investigation in 2007 by the Senate Financial Committee this was run by Iowa Republican Senator Charles Grassley who launched a investigation into financial and tax practices of six televangelists, Cephalo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, Eddie Long, Kenneth Copeland. Also, Benny, Kenneth, and Cephalo sat on the Board of Regents for Oral Roberts University. During this investigation, Cephalo refused to disclose his documents related to taxes and financial documents and was deemed by the committee the least cooperative out of the six. And after three years, Cephalo's mentor, Kenneth Copeland, stepped in and somehow got the charges dropped and the Senate investigation to stop. And the committee closed it with stating the ministries must perform self-reform since four of the six plainly demonstrated their unwillingness to engage in any sort of meaningful transparency or accountability. Then, the closing statement of the investigation itself was, this committee staff was troubled by the array of business entities including private airports and aircraft leasing companies that raised red flags about the use of churches tax exempt status to avoid taxation. Precisely because of Cephalo Dollar's lack of cooperation, the staff concluded 
conclusion is we are unable to determine whether and the extent to which they are reporting and paying taxes on income earned in these entities. And like I said, no charges came from these. Though this isn't Seffler's first investigation or the last. One came in 1999 when heavyweight boxer Evander Hollyfield was getting a divorce and Seffler refused a court-ordered statement on how much Evander gave the church since Janice Hollyfield's lawyer determined he donated 400000 to the church in 1998 and $3.9 million 60 days before the divorce. Seffler's lawyer said he didn't have to give a statement since the separation of church and state, but the court found him in contempt but didn't charge him since a settlement was reached in the divorce. Then in December that year, Cephalo gave a hundred Fulton County police officers a thousand dollars each for what he stated was as a good favor, but the county ethics board found out and punished the police officers for receiving a bribe which was found out to be in correlation to certain traffic tickets that have been cleared or at least brought down from traffic tickets to warnings after the bribes were handed out. And no punishment was recorded for the police officers in this instance. Now, finally in 2012, he was arrested after Fayette County Sheriff deputies responded to a call of domestic violence at Cephalo Dollar's home at 1 a.m. The call was from his 15-year-old daughter who was hit by her father. Brennett Rowan, the investigator, said the pastor and his daughters were arguing over whether she could go out to a party when Dollar got physical with her, leaving her with a superficial injury. The 15-year-old daughter's story was collaborated by her older sister who was 19 at the time. And Seffler was arrested and faced a misdemeanor charge of simple battery and cruelty to children. He was also bonded out of jail the following morning, though no charges were filed and they ended up being dropped altogether. And this article didn't go into any descriptions on his daughter's injury or any relevant details to the case it just seemed like there was scant details and that is all that covers cephalo dollar now seventh is joel olstein and he inherited in 1999 the lakewood church in houston texas with a weekly attendance of 52,000 people and a television ministry. Now he is the senior pastor there and 7 million people from 100 countries tune in to his, to his television church broadcast. He also receives royalties from his book sales, radio shows, public speaking fees, church collections, and reportedly makes $55 million per year. And he lives with his wife and kids in a $10.5 million mansion in Houston, Texas, which that complex and his 60,000 square foot stadium megachurch in Lakewood came under criticism and news spotlight when they refused to shelter evacuees from Hurricane Harvey. Also, in 2017, his net worth was estimated at $50 million. Next is Benny Hinn. He founded the Orlando Christian Center Church in 1983, and in the early 2000s, the headquarters was moved to Grapevine, Texas. Benny is known for what's called his Miracle Crusades, which were faith-healing-like summits 
held in stadiums around the country and his TV shows This Is Your Day and others at this event had his followers believe Benny could heal any ailment if he prayed over it. He used this to get a lot of funding to his church, buying him luxury cars and other items, buying them with church funds. This prompted a Senate Finance Committee investigation where Hen and five other televangelists were investigated in 2007. And a couple years later, the case was dropped since nothing could be revealed from lack of documentation and transparency and the intervention of Kenneth Copeland. But again, Benny came under investigation in 2017 by the IRS and U.S. Postal Service and his Grapevine, Texas headquarters was raided in April 2007 and his investigation is still pending. Also, his net worth is reported at $60 million in 2016. Then is Pat Roberts and he founded the Christian Broadcasting Network in 1960 and this broadcast to 180 countries in 71 language. Also, the main and most well-known show on this network is the 700 Club Show. He also founded a Christian coalition, which is an organization that raises money for political candidates on state and federal levels. And he founded the Regent University and is its CEO and Chancellor. Roberts reports his net worth as $100 million. Now to get to the last person, and that is Kenneth Copeland. Copeland founded and heads the Kenneth Copeland Ministries with his third wife, Gloria Nessie, based in Tarrant County, Texas. Also, real quick, his first marriage was to Ivy Boaford. They had one daughter together, then divorced in 1958. No reason was given on why they divorced. Then his second marriage was to Cynthia Davids, and they separated in 1961, and this time she left Kenneth because of his radical views. Then the Kenneth Copeland Ministries facility is a 33-acre property in Fort Worth, Texas, valued at more than $550,000. And this site includes Eagle Mountain International Church, a television and radio station, a warehouse for storage and distribution of CDs, books, and other church items and the Copeland's personal house and private airport are also located here. Also at the airport, Kenneth keeps a 1998 Cessna 550 Citation Bravo which was supposedly donated to him by one of his congregation members in October 2007 and he uses this plane primarily for domestic flights. Then a 2005 Cessna 750 Citation X for international flights. Also he has a restored 1962 Birch H18 Twin. Next he has a Gulfstream 5 jet who he bought from Tyler Perry. Then lastly a North American T28 Trojan. With the number and worth of these planes it opened up investigations, but nothing turned up because of the refusal to release documents to the IRS and because of Kenneth's own involvement into the investigation. In 2009, when his $3.6 million jet was denied tax-exempt status, since the ministry already had $17.5 million worth of planes already. Then, in 2018, Kenneth requested $19.5 million for a new hangar and airport upgrades, and with recent events, 
which I'll touch on, has opened another inquiry into Kenneth's finances and tax-exempt status. But before that, he also stated in 2015 that he used private planes so he didn't have to be on planes with people since they are a bunch of demons. And he was also interviewed by Lisa Guerrero from Inside Edition and is a video which I tried to link into the podcast but didn't have much luck. But I will link below which really shows how unhinged this Kenneth Copeland is. And multiple times Kenneth says that he needs the plane to spread his message and that he owns a natural gas pipeline on his land but nothing could validate the claims that he stated in this interview. Now recently, Kenneth decided to do mass healing for this COVID bullshit. And he still wanted people to send in weekly donations even though most people were losing their jobs and having trouble paying their own bills. And all this faith healing started in March, specifically March 11th, when Kenneth told viewers to his TV show to put their hands on their TV screens and they would be healed. And the video is still on Right Wing Watch, Twitter feed, and YouTube. Then he held another healing service on March 15th and also said the disease called COVID-19 will be over much sooner than you think. Christian people all over this country praying have overwhelmed it. Again, this video is still up on right, right Wing Watch, Twitter feed, and YouTube. After this, he put on multiple places this message. Hey, your job's not your source. If it is, you're in trouble. Jesus is your source. Whatever you do right now, don't you stop tithing. Don't you stop sowing offerings. Then, when the shutdown started, Kenneth said, Well, email it in then. Text it together. Something. But you get your tithes in. That, if you have to go and take it down and drop it off, stick it in under the door or something, you get that tithes in that church. You get that offering in that church. Then, you go home and you do what you're supposed to do. Then, again, on March 29th, he decides a follow-up healing is needed and is stated saying it is it is finished it is over and the united states of america is healed again but he wasn't done since on april 3rd kenneth decides to do another faith healing saying i blow the wind of god on you you were destroyed forever and you'll never come back then in another broadcast that was on his site and was on his TV broadcast, he claimed that God told him COVID was a weak flu and fearing it was a sin and putting faith into the devil and didn't agree with other pastors and churches closing saying, I want you in my church. If we have to pass out thermometers, if we find one with a fever, let's get him healed right here. What if you do get it? Big deal. And after May, he was quiet on the whole topic, just back to his old message and occasional political statements. And also, finally, before we move on from him, his network was reported by some sources and by himself as $300 million, and other sources and Forbes report his net worth at $750 million. And this also ends the brief discussion over Tevilangelis, and really just wanted to bring it up because of... It seems like a misuse of church funds and donations and taxes and status 
that these people are allowed to get away with so much and have such a high net worth when they could use that money for altogether other things, but I will get into that with my my thoughts at the end. So, on to our next campfire, and that is Kent Hovid, and he is the first evangelical I want to talk about. Kent is a Christian fundamentalist, tax protester, and young earth creationist, and established the creation scientist evangelicism in 1989 but in 1971 he graduated from East Perona Community High School in East Perona, Illinois then entered the accredited Illinois Central College but transferred into the unaccredited Midwestern Baptist College. In 1972 he obtained a bachelor's in religious education then he married a woman named Joe in 1973 and had three kids between 1977 and 1979, and served as assistant pastor and teacher at three private Baptist schools from 1975 to 1988. Kent then got his master's in Christian education at the unaccredited Patriot University in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and then his doctorate in 1991 from the same school. Also, this school should be noted as a diploma mill, and is still considered that today. Kent, while at school, again set up Dr. Dino website and started producing articles, selling videotapes and books and fossil replicas. He has well started the creation science evangelicism to teach creationism in 1989 and was joined by his son and daughter in 1999. The same year he merged with Faith Baptist Fellowship. Then in 2001, Kent started Dinosaur Adventureland, a young earth creationist theme park in Pensacola, Florida. And this sat on seven acres with a indoor facility called the Science Center with rides that were dino themed and activities that were also themed towards dinosaurs. An example of this is Jumpasaurus, which was a trampoline next to a basketball hoop. Kids would have one minute to make a basket, and if they succeeded, would get a message from Jesus. The, par the park also depicted humans and dinosaurs coexisting 4,000 to 6,000 years ago and claimed dinosaurs still roam the earth. But this park ran into legal problems in 2002, but I'll go over the legal issues after finishing up his background. After 2002 in 2009, after the legal issues finished, the park was closed, and he also had multiple debates in the late 1990s and early 2000s, but Michael Schrimmer described it as not an intelligible exercise, but rather an emotional drama. Then Massimo Pelagushi described Kent as surprisingly ignorant of evolutionary theory. And in 1990, Kent made a $10,000 offer to anyone who could set up a experiment or prove evolution on certain conditions and criteria he set forth. And his qualifications were this. First note, when I use the word evolution, I am not referring to the minor variation found in all of various life forms, microevolution. I am referring to the general theory of evolution, which believes these five major events took place without God. One, time, space, and matter came into existence by themselves. Two, planets and stars formed from space dust. Three, matter created life by itself. 
4. Early life forms learn to reproduce by themselves. 5. Major changes occurred between these diverse life forms, i.e. fish changed to amphibians, amphibians changed to reptiles, and reptiles changed to birds or mammals. He raised the reward to $250,000, then later took down the offer in 2007. Kent also got involved in an the anti-evolution bill in 2001 with Arkansas State Representative Jim Holt. And this bill would make it when public schools teach evolution, it would have to identify it as a theory. The bill ended up passing even with the statements from Kent and additions he made were removed. Now for the last part of his background. First is his creation theory, where he believes dinosaurs and humans coexisted. Like the T-Rex was a vegetarian prior to the fall of man. Then he also uses the use of the vapor canopy concept, which is a protective shield that made the earth a relative paradise between the explosion from Eden and Noah's flood. And also with the flood, Kent says it is a function of nature, not a miraculous process. Then continues with the Noah's family took two of every animal and dinosaurs also, but were boarded as babies and boarded the ark before a ice meteor hit earth. This impact created planetary rings around other planets, craters on the moon, and other solar bodies. Then the remainder of this meteor were drawn to the north and south poles because of the magnetic fields of earth. Then this caused rapid snow to bury the mammoths and the other polar animals. Then created cracks in the earth's crust to release something called the fountains of the deep which is a concept that comes from Genesis. Finally these events caused the ice age in total and this in turn caused the earth to wobble and collapse the vapor canopy and in the next few months the flood came and all the dead animals and plants were buried becoming oil, coal, and fossils. Now his second theory runs with the first one as anti-evolution or evolution conspiracy which Kent thinks Darwinism produced communism, socialism, Nazism, abortions, liberalism and the new age movement as well as the trails of tears which forced the relocation of the native american people but the trail of tears preceded which came before darwin's origin of species by at least two decades which is funny then kent goes on to say Biology textbooks in public schools are lying to brainwash the youth and Satan is using evolution to make kids go to hell. Kent also said to forge the missing link transitional fossils to support human evolution, the Smithsonian Institute has 33,000 sets of human remains in their basement, some of them taken from people that were alive and murdered to stage fossils and create certain other pieces of the missing link to make the evolutionary theory credible. Now lastly, his conspiracy theory views on most other topics that he, Kent has have a religious view or religious bent to them as well and are just more general topics and I'll go through a little bit of a rundown now and just kind of group them 
altogether that he thinks, and this is all coming from Kent's own words and his own videos. Kent thinks creationism isn't taught in public schools because of the New World Order, which he thinks was established by Satan and involves Ted Turner, Jane Fonda, the British royal family, the State of Israel, the American Civil Liberties Union, the U.S. government pertaining particularly to certain officials and leaders of the government, business CEOs, and social activists. Kent also says there is world domination plans that were started on May 5th, 2000. Kent also claims that the government was behind 9-11 and the Oklahoma bombings, and UFOs are government experimentation with new propulsion technology, and others are just apparitions created by Satan. Kent also claims that cyanide-releasing compounds, Lasseril, L-A-E-T-R-I-L, is a cancer cure, and the U.S. government is currently suppressing it as well as a cure for HIV, Gulf War Syndrome, Crohn's colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, and Alzheimer's which also were engineered by the money masters and government of the world for global economic domination. Then he also, Kent also adds that democracy is evil and contrary to God's law and global warming is a communist conspiracy somehow. Which, I think Trump thinks that too, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Then his last theory is the U.S. government is implanting pet tracking microchips into people allowing them to be tracked by satellite and the UPC barcode is the mark of the beast. Now to get into his legal troubles, which started out after Rebecca Horton, senior vice president of Pensacola Christian College, reported Kent to the IRS in the mid-1990s when she learned of his anti-tax stand. Also, Kent's organization didn't have a business license or tax-exempt status, and Kent considered it a church, but the people working for him and at his facilities didn't consider it a church. So, in 1996, in March particularly, Kent filed a Chapter 13 bankruptcy petition to avoid paying federal income taxes claiming he was not a citizen of the United States and that he didn't earn a income along with that as well as everything he owned belonged to the ministry as well as to God and he was not subject to paying taxes for doing God's work but on June 1996 the court dismissed the bankruptcy case finding he lied about his possessions and income and the IRS has no records of the the debtor Kent ever having filed a federal income tax return. Because of this, in 1998, the IRS subpoenaed a internet broadcast station on claims Kent made himself on this broadcast network and learned that Kent talked about his tax law noncompliance going back to the 1970s. While the IRS did this, Kent and his wife filed for power of attorney and revocation of signature documents in Escabena County, which claims to nullify any of their promises, debts, or legal agreements prior to April 15, 1998. Kent said they did this due to the use of elements of fraud and misrepresentation, duress, coercion under perjury, mistake, 
bankruptcy and argued Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. Don't know why the last one was attached, but he just said it all in one. The document also referred to the U.S. government as the bankrupt corporate government. The Hovids renounced the U.S. citizenship and Social Security numbers to become natural citizens of America and a natural sojourn with referring to their home state of Florida as the state of Florida Body Politic Corporation, but judges and the IRS did not honor this legal document or see it as a legal binding document in future hearings. Then there was nothing from the IRS, but Kent tried and failed to sue the IRS for harassment. Then, on August 15, 2002, Kent was arrested for assault, battery, and burglary in an instance with a... CSE secretary at his establishment, but the charges were dropped in December. Though in September 13, 2002, Kent was charged with failure to observe county zoning regulations for his dinosaur adventure land. This was a misdemeanor, and while on the park in April 2006, the park itself was closed by county officials and a Florida Circuit Court found the owners in contempt, ordering fines of $500 for each day the buildings were used. But Kent argued these claims, and after a five-year court battle over a $50 building permit, Kent pleaded nolo contendere, which is, I do not wish to contend, which were three counts of constructing a building without a permit, refusing to sign a citation, and violating the county building code and Kent had to pay fines which he only resulted in paying $675 which was nowhere near the original amount of the fine. Now to go back to spring 2004 when the IRS conducted a audit and criminal investigation regarding Kent's unfiled personal federal income taxes for 1995 through 1997 with IRS agent Scott Schreider saying, Since 1997, Kent has engaged in financial transactions indicating sources of income and has made deposits to bank accounts well in excess of $1 million per year, which would require the filing, filing of federal income taxes. Then on June 3, 2004, the IRS executed a search warrant on Kent's home and business to confiscate federal records and attempt to deliver notices of federal tax lien of $504,000 and $957, which Kent refused to accept and agents confiscated $42,000 in cash which was hidden in various places in the house, six guns, with a couple of them being SKS semi-automatic rifles. Also, Kent withdrew $70,000 from Creation Science Evangelicalism accounts, half of which was in cash. On July 7, 2006, the U.S. Tax Court found that Kent was deficient in paying his federal income tax in 1995 to 1997, with a total of $520,100, and with penalties, he owed $3.3 million for tax years of 1998 to 2006, and had to pay them by 2013. And his wife was ordered to pay $1.6 million. 
Then Kent was indicated on 58 counts in the district court in northern Florida in Pensacola. The first 12 counts were charges for willful failure to collect, account for, and pay over federal income taxes and FICA taxes in connection with the Creation Science Evangelicalism Organization, totaling $473,818 for the 12 fiscal quarters of 2001 to 2003. The next 43 counts were charges of knowingly structuring transactions by making multiple cash withdrawals totaling $430,500 and in amounts it was just under the $10,000 each which is required to report. His wife was also charged with this as well. And the final count was a charge of corruptibly endeavoring to obstruct and impede the administration of the internal revenue law by falsely listing the IRS as his only creditors when filing for bankruptcy. Filing a false and frivolous lawsuit against the IRS in which he demanded damages for criminal trespassing, making threats or harming to those investigating him. Filing a false complaint against a IRS agent which was investigating him. Filing a false criminal complaint against IRS special agents and destroying records which were requested by the IRS. At his arraignment, Kent claimed this. I still don't understand what I'm being charged for and who is charging me. The judge replied this. The government adequately explained the allegations and the defendant understands the charges whether he wants to admit it or not. Also, when asked about his home, he called it his church parish. Then his trial began on October 21st, 2006. Kent tried to claim his amusement park admissions and merchandising sales, which was over $5 million from 1999 to March 2004, belonged to God and couldn't be taxed. And his wife, Joy, had requested financial assistance from Baptist Health Care, claiming they had no income. The prosecution showed missionaries... Ministers and volunteers were described as employees and facilities were described as company locations. Also, those employees testified that they had to use punch cards and had the allocation of vacation and six days but never received W-2 tax forms. And after the IRS search warrant, the employees at this location had to sign non-disclosure agreements to remain employees there. Then on November 2nd, Kent was found guilty on all 58 charges and his wife was found guilty on 48 charges. Then in January 19th, 2007, Kent was sentenced to 10 years in prison with 3 years of probation and ordered to pay the federal government restitutions of over $600,000. Also on June 29th, 2007, his wife Joe was sentenced to one year and three years of supervision upon release and fined $8,000. And she tried to prove and put forth explanations for at least 
45 checks that she transferred and didn't know what the reason was for the cashing of it. But the judge stated that she managed the payroll for the organization and she had cashed roughly 200 checks totaling in $1.5 million over a four-year period, mainly in cash. And in between 2008 and 2014, Kent filed for multiple appeals but was denied every time. Then Kent was released to home confinement for one month to finish his sentence. At the same time, on October 21st, 2014, Kent was indicated by a federal grand jury in Pensacola on two counts of mail fraud, one count of conspiracy with Paul John Henson to commit mail fraud, and one count of criminal content for interfering with the sale of Pensacola properties. Kent was forced to forfeit in the 2006 case. Both people plead not guilty. Then on March 2nd, 2015, the trial began. And on March 12, 2015, Kent was found guilty on one count of criminal content. Hansen was found guilty on two counts of criminal content and the jury were split on the remaining charges. Then on May 18, 2015, the U.S. District Court made two decision, decisions. First, the court granted the prosecution request for a without prejudice dismissal for the remaining three charges against Kent. Second, the court rendered a judgment of acquittal on the criminal contempt charges which Kent had been found guilty by the jury on. So the court concluded that the specific order that Kent had been found guilty of violating, there was no actual language that prohibited Kent from doing anything and was released. But in August 2015, Paul Henson was sentenced to 18 months and 3 years probation for two counts of contempt. Then Kent and Joe got a divorce in 2016, and April that year, Kent talked about a new dinosaur adventure land in Kunkunch County, Alabama. Then a supporter of his donated 140-acre parcel of land in Lenox, Alabama. Volunteer work started by June 2016 and the park opened in April 2018. And within the first month had an average attendance of over 1,000 people. And Kent opened this park with a new 501c3 organization for the Creation Science Organization Ministries, Inc., with its revenue streaming from donations, books, and DVD sales, and YouTube advertising, since there is no emissions charge for the park and operates without liability insurance. Kent also hosts a YouTube channel called Kent Hovids Official, and one day I might go into depth on some of the views and teachings and theories that he claims in depth. And lastly, I want to add with regards to his park, in March 2020, a child ended up drowning at the park, but nothing was released on this incident since it's still being investigated and certain child protection laws don't really have any statements or news outlets reporting on it right now. And that finishes up Kent, like I said. Next, we will move on to our next campfire of Jim Baker. B-A-K-K-E-R is how you would spell Baker in this instance. And he was a televangelist, entrepreneur, and convicted fraudster who hosted the television program PTL Club. 
To start with Jim, he was born in 1940 in Muskogean, Michigan, and on his website says he was prophesied at the age of 19 he would go where no one had gone before. Then he went on to North Central University in Minneapolis where he met his first wife, Tammy Faye Lavallee. At this time, he worked at a local restaurant till 1966 when Jim began working with Pat Robertson's Christian Broadcasting Network. And Jim hosted Come On Over, a children's show, and Jim and Tammy show, another children's program. And Jim also hosted the first version of the 700 Club. Then Jim left Pat Roberts' network in 1972 and joined with Paul and John Croach to found the Trinity Broadcasting Network in 1973. Jim and his wife moved to Charlotte, North Carolina and put on the first PTL Praise the Lord Club Show in 1976, but the facilities and corporation was formed in 1974. The show functioned like a late night talk show host, talk show guest host, with guests from religious figures like Billy Graham and Oral Roberts to entertainers like Mr. T and Mikey Rooney. Jim also set up satellite PTL network facilities in 1974, as well as building the ministry's headquarters in Fort Mill, South Carolina, which was called the Heritage Village, and expanded this to include a Heritage USA amusement park, which was a 2,200-acre resort with a studio for 1,800 people, rides, and had a $1.2 million water park campground. Also had hotels and condos, but to fund this, he started to share, sell timeshares, or what was referred to as a PTL club parlance, a $1,000 lifetime partnership that offered people a few nights stay at the park each year. Though Jim sold 66,000 of these partnerships, the hotel only had 500 rooms to keep guests. And he also got multiple large donations, but those were used to gain the land and all the funds to build the park came mainly from those lifetime partnerships and the PTL organization as a whole. This park was estimated to have 6 million people visiting the park in 1986 and was third to Disney World and Disneyland in terms of attendance level. Then the viewer contribution to his PTL show were estimated to exceed $1 million a week. Then in 1987, two scandals brought down Jim and his ministries. First is his sexual encounter with Jessica Han. H-A-H-N, who was 21 at the time and a secretary of the church. On December 6, 1980, Jim and Jessica had a sexual encounter in a Florida hotel room, and on March 1987, bank statements and transaction through Roe Menzer showed Jim have, had given $350,000 to Jessica and was described later by Romenzer and Jessica as hush money to keep her quiet about the sexual encounter. Then the s sexual scandal came out in the media and Jessica claimed the sexual encounter wasn't 
consensual. And she said Joe Fletcher lured her into Baker's hotel room and told her, you're going to do something tremendous for God. And that was her statement to then-author John Wigner at ABC. She also described to John other details of the sexual encounter, and he later stated this, The way Jessica Hand later described her sexual encounter with Jim Baker sounds very much like rape. And John Wesleyer Fletcher, the co-host of the PTL Club, and who later took over for Jim, said Baker had drugged and raped her and was paid with PTL funds through Baker's associate, Roe Menzer. Jim, de Jim denied all these claims, and no charges came from it at the time. But as for Jessica, she first gave this interview with a Playboy magazine, then she went on to live at the Playboy Mansion for a while, even became a model for them, and went on to become a radio announcer in Phoenix, Arizona, with becoming a regular on Howard Stern show for a while. Also, she testified before a grand jury for the next scandal, and the hush money was a kickoff for the next part as well. But before going into that, Jim put Jerry Farrell, F-A-L-W-E-L-L, -L, -E -L -L, a Southern Baptist, in charge of the PTL, and thought this would be a temporary measure till the scandal died down. But Jerry ended up barring Jim from returning to the PTL on April 28, 1987. Then Jerry and the remaining members of the PTL board resigned in October 1987 stating the ruling of a bankruptcy court judge made rebuilding impossible. But really the donations from viewers were cut almost to nothing after this scandal and that's why they had to close. Then the second issue started in 1979 when Jim and the PTL Ministries came under investigation by the FCC Federal Communications Commission for misusing funds raised on the air. With a report finalized in 1982 found Jim had raised $350,000 telling viewers it would go towards overseas missions but was used for the Heritage USA Park and that Jim and his wife Tammy Faye used PTL funds for personal expenses but the SEC commission voted 4-3 to three to drop the investigation after Jim was to sell only the television station that he owned and the FCC forwarded their report to Justice Department and they declined to press charges citing insufficient evidence. Then in 1985 a confidential IRS report found that 1.3 million dollars of ministry funds were used for Jim's personal benefit from 1980 to 1983 and recommended that the PTL be stripped of its tax exempt status but no action was taken until 1980. 87 when the previous Jessica Hand scandal came to light. Also, fundraising activities between 1984 and 1987 seemed to contribute to the investigations, like the lifetime memberships that he was offering, and it was found out besides the overselling of these, but the hotel itself was never finished, and that it was also the budget was cut in half to build the hotel and other spaces, making it so Jim was able to pocket $3.4 million off of the building of the Heritage USA. They also uncovered questionable deduction claims by his tax-exempt ministry from a 
$592,000 oceanfront condo in Palm Springs, Florida, $67,000 in women's clothes, $800 in Gucci briefcases, $200,000 for furnishing the Palm Beach condo, and particularly a vacation in Hawaii with a 350-night stay at a hotel for 10 nights, and the flight was also paid for and all other expenses were paid for by the ministry. Then, after a 16-month federal grand jury probe, Jim was indicated in 1988 on 8 counts of mail fraud, 15 counts of wire fraud, and 1 count of conspiracy, and PTL Executive Vice President Richard W. Dorch, Jim's former special assistant David A. Taggart, and his brother James H. Taggart, who was considered the ministry's interior decorator, each were charged with 11 counts of tax evasion and conspiracy to impede the IRS. Then, after a five-week trial in August 1989, a jury found Jim and others guilty. Jim was guilty on all 24 counts, and Judge Robert Daniel Porter sentenced Jim to 45 years in a federal prison and imposed a $500,000 fine with a chance of parole after 10 years, and had to pay restitutions and claims adding up to $100 million. The others had to pay fees, and Richard Dorch had to serve a couple years in jail. While Jim was in prison, his wife Tammy Faye divorced him and gained custody of their 16-year-old son. But Tammy ended up dying in 2007. Then, somehow, Jim's lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, got his sentence in November 1992 reduced to 8 years and in August 1993 transferred to a minimum security federal prison and Jim got paroled in July 1994 after serving almost five years of his sentence and released on December 1994, still owing $6 million to the IRS. But while in prison, Jim's views on the preachings that he had changed from the prosperity theology to apocalypticism, saying that the end times were near. He wrote a book after getting out of prison to called I Was Wrong, where he claimed he atoned for his sins in prison, and prison gave him time to contemplate his errors, that money had corrupted his soul, and he also realized that the prosperity gospel he'd been practicing and preaching was actually contradicting Christ. He even went on to condemn other people who practiced the prosperity gospel, even those who he had worked with in the past, and he also still denied the sexual allegation charges from Jessica Han. Also, upon his release, he was doing an inner city outreach program for a church in Los Angeles in 1998 and met a fellow minister, Lloyd Graham, and they got married less than two months after meeting. They also adopted five kids by 2003. With Lloyd, Jim launched a brand new broadcast show called The Jim Baker Show in Branson, Missouri and a Morningside Church in the same town. Also, he was financially backed by a millionaire, Jerry Crawford, paying $17 million to buy a 800-acre plot of land and for the construction of the ministry and broadcasting booth area. Then the broadcasting was a daily show carried by Christian Television Network, Daystar, 
Folk TV, Grace Network, Impact Network, Golden Eagle Broadcast Network, WGN America, and World Network. Also, most viewers use DirecTV and Dish Network to tune in to his broadcast. Then, in 2008, Jim made expansion with the support of Jerry Crawford again to add ministries in Blue Eye, Missouri, and to make Morningside USA, something very, very similar to Heritage USA. And he built condos, shopping facilities, camping and RV parks, restaurants, and hotels. And Morningside even had a school of media with the church at the center of Morningside USA. And like I said, he went from telling his followers that God wanted them to be wealthy and wealth was a sign of God's favor and to share their wealth with him. Instead, he ended up going to a new message of a dire warning that humanity must prepare for the looming apocalypse and started selling prepper supplies and products he sell range from generators and vitamins to a silver solution enema kit and food buckets. And also on the food buckets, they are his most heavily pushed product and the most bought product of his. And includes a 60 freezer dried meal plan with dishes of black bean burgers and buttermilk pancakes for an average price of $2,275. And if you compare this to other prepper sites or other prepper companies, the items that Jim sells are 10 to 20% more in price and are lesser in quality compared to other preppers and other prepper organizations. Like a Brooklyn chef, Greg Laro cooked and sampled one of the dishes from Jim's end of days food buckets in 2015 with a video on YouTube describing them as one of the worst things I've ever eaten in my life. Now some of the claims he's made. One is he claims that he predicted the 9-11 attacks saying, and this is Jim saying, I saw 9-11 in 1999 before New Year's and there would be a terrorism and bombing in New York City and Washington DC. Then Jim went on to say a few days after the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting that in a dream that God came to me wearing a camouflage hunting vest and had an AR-15 rifle strapped to his back and that God supported Trump's plan to arm teachers. Then Jim in a October 2017 video said this, God will punish those who ridicule them and Hurricane Harvey was judgment of God as well as blamed Hurricane Matthew on then President Barack Obama. Jim then went on in other videos to state that he predicted President Donald Trump would be impeached and Christians would begin a second American Civil War. It should be noted that in 2013 Jim wrote a book Time Has Come how to prepare for the epic events ahead, and refers to those on his show and himself as prophets. Then when COVID-19 started, Jim offered a product called Silver Soul Liquid, advertising a four four ounce bottle set for $80 each in February 2020, claiming it had the ability to diagnose and even cure COVID-19 and this product is basically the same as another product he sells called Silver Solution 
and that product Jim claims to cure every STI and on February 12th, 2020, on an episode of his show, he said, well, let's say it hasn't been tested on this strand of coronavirus, but it has been tested on other strands of coronavirus and has been able to eliminate them within 12 hours. And then his guest, Cheryl Sailman added, Silver Solution has the ability to kill every pathogen it has ever been tested on, including SARS and HIV. So, naturally, the FDA took action, sending a warning of letter to these unproven claims and that they were in violation of Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and Jim and Morningside Church were sued by the state of Missouri for being in violation of Missouri Merchandising Practices Act by falsely promising to consumers that Silver Solution and Silver Soul Liquid can cure, eliminate, kill, or deactivate coronavirus or and boost elderly consumers' immune system and help them to keep healthy. Then, sometime in late March, early April, Jim had suffered a stroke and his wife won't release any information yet about his condition or the ministry's affairs. And that also concludes everything on Jim Baker as of yet. There could still be more and if there is, I will probably add that in an updated part of an episode in the future if there is any updates forthcoming. So let's move on to the next campfire. Which will be over Peter Popoff, a televangelist and debunked clairvoyant and fraudulent faith healer who was born in 1946 in occupied East Berlin and immigrated with his family, then went to attend Shoffrey College but transferred to the University of California in Santa Barbara, graduated in 1970. During this, Peter's father preached revival meetings throughout the U.S. And in 1960, Peter started to appear as a preacher, billed as the Miracle Boy Evangelist. And on advertisements, it claimed he was born in West Berlin in a bomb shelter. And he had been rescued from a Serbian prison camp and had powers including the ability to heal the sick, to foretell the future, and to prophesize. By 1971, Peter married his wife Elizabeth and they settled in Upland, California. Then in early 1980s, he set up the Tevelangelist Ministry and Broadcasting Network there, he continued his faith healing as the center part of his ceremonies. He would tell them to free themselves from the devil and even convinced people to throw prescriptions of dialtols, nitroglycerine tablets, oral diabetes tablets, and medications and other medications on his stage to be released from the demons that confined them. Peter also commanded people in wheelchairs to rise and break free of the devil, and he set up a mailing letter service where he would type up letters and claim to make them personal and would ask for a small donation in return for miraculous water samples, more wealth if you donated a little, and the strings would continue for at least 20 to 30 letters, giving certain items like prayer cloths, anointed anointed dollars, miracle water, prayer cards to fill out. But first to talk about his faith healing, which was discovered in 
1986 as a fraudulent claim and used deception to achieve his faith healing by the Committee for Skeptical Inquiries, specifically a team led by the amazing James Randi, which was his stage magician name, and he is also a special investigator who investigates paranormal claims for validity. He was joined with Alec Jason, a technical assistant from the crime scene analytic and electronics expert, and he had an assistant, Bob Snyder. Then there was Randy's associate, Steve Shaw, and Burkeck, his prof- which was his professional name, was an illusionist, also joined them. And this was the full team that investigated Peter Popoff's faith healing claims and found them out to be debunked. They did this in the back parts of auditoriums and buildings which Peter ended up doing his faith healing ceremonies in. And they set up a radio scanner before the show started and were able to zero in on a frequency 39.7 megahertz which should be noted also is used by police scanners. And they ended up hearing a female's voice which was identified as Peter's wife, Elizabeth. And Peter was receiving these via earpiece that they discovered later on in video recordings. And the female voice was heard to say, Hello, Petey. I love you. I'm talking to you. Can you hear me? If you can't, you're in trouble, because I'm talking as well as I can. Then a pause. I'm looking up the names right now. Way over to the other side on the other balcony is Josephine Paranio. Run all the way over to the right side. Now, Josephine Perennio, Josephine Perennio. Then Peter would ask on the loud mic, who's Josephine? And the girl would identify herself and Elizabeth would add, she's got cancer of the stomach. Later, the group of investigators recorded this and Elizabeth saying, I have a hot one for you, Robert Kayward. He's got a chest condition that needs surgery. Robert Kayward. Kayward, Kayward. He needs surgery. His veins aren't formed. He prays that God will heal him today. Also at the same event, the group recorded Elizabeth telling Peter this. Reedford's got a hot one, followed by laughter. Reedford's so excited. He came running back here and scared us half to death. You ready for a hot one? Okay, want a hot one? Hot one. Hot one off the presses. Ruby Lee Harris. Ruby Lee. She is standing in the far back where there's no chairs. Long pause. Ruby Lee Harris. She's against the back wall. She's got lumps in her breast. You might want to whisper it. Have her walk down. Have her run up there. Run. Oh, look at her run. Loud laughter. She's got knots in her breast. Slight laughter. A home run. A home run. Laughs continue. Then at one event, Randy's team collected hours of similar conversations, then went to multiple events where Peter would do his faith healing, still able to record conversations of Elizabeth with two more examples that I have from her Detroit seminars, where she told Peter that big N-word in the back, keep your hands off her titties, I'm watching you, and where she heard laughing at multiple people with cancer, particularly a man with testicular cancer and a particular physical appearance that made it difficult for him to walk. Also at multiple seminars, Randy asked multiple volunteers to adopt false names 
and a false disease and act like a hot one. One particular man, Don Henvick, who was used at various events. One time, Don was approached and questioned by Elizabeth during the show. Peter called out the false name and false disease in the exact order of people that were questioned when Don was questioned by Elizabeth earlier. Then, in a San Francisco event, Peter called out Don as a bearded man under the name of Tom Hendry and cured him of a broken home and the bondages of alcohol. Then, in Anaheim, California, Don was a bald and clean-shaven man by the name of Virgil Jorgensen and was healed for serious arthritis condition. Then, Randy had Don dress up as a woman and claim he had uterine cancer and put him in a wheelchair and decide that their fake name would be Bernice Manikoff. Also, during this, Scott Morrison, an editor for Omni, O-M-N-I, joined Randy's team and went with Don as Bernice's fake son. At the event, they tried to sit close to Elizabeth, but because of the wheelchair was directed to the orchestra pit seating and were joined by two women with canes that came down and sat in empty wheelchairs which were rented by Peter in the orchestra pit for this event. One of the ladies remarked, I guess this is where they wanted us to sit. Later, both women were called to the stage and made to stand up from the wheelchair like they couldn't walk at all, but clearly they could before the event. Then Don, as Bernice, sent her son to speak with Elizabeth and give her the fake story of his mother. Elizabeth took her name down and had Brother Reedford ask her, How long have you been in that wheelchair and can you walk at all? And most of the people that can't walk at all aren't picked. But since Don was in a wheelchair and was in the wheelchair off and on for the last couple years, according to their story, she could walk a little. And after Reedford got that and that her doctor thinks that she might have uterine cancer, he left. Late into the event, Bernice was finally called on stage and Peter promised to burn the cancer out of her body and commanded Bernice to rise from the wheelchair and walk. Don as Bernice went along with the performance as told by Randy. But also at this time the group was recording Elizabeth during this and she said to Peter this, Bernice, Bernice Manikoff, Bernice Manikoff, the woman with hair on her face, she's in a wheelchair and can walk. After Don rose from the wheelchair, though, Elizabeth started yelling, That's the guy from Anaheim. He's a stooge. It's a man. A man. Get away from him. That's a guy from Anaheim. Drop him fast. <clears throat> Drop him fast. After this, Randy's team started to wrap up the investigation. And in total, they had thousands of recordings over six months and 60 volunteers recording their statements and their experience that were like Don's for attending faith healings in Rochester, Brooklyn, Houston, Stockholm, Anaheim, Sacramento, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Detroit, St. Louis, and Fort Lauderdale, and put their accounts down for the record. They also looked into the mail list program with getting 30 letters from Peter and everyone asking them for a small sum of 13 to $32 and would return them tenfold in the future. And a couple times they were noted to have received Russian currency, handkerchiefs, red felt hearts that would be carried or worn, and miracle water. 
The letters were said to be personalized to each person and handmade by Peter, but were found out and analyzed to be computer-generated, and even the sections that seemed to be handwritten were actually printed and computer-generized when analyzed. The team wasn't able to see how much Peter made off of the mailing list, particularly since they were a religious non-profit group and didn't have to file reports of revenue, particularly of where it came, just of the revenue itself. And Randy's group took all this and revealed it on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson in May 1968. They even brought on a earpiece that was the same model they suspected Peter to be using. Peter came out and said that somebody had impersonated his wife during those recordings. Then he officially claimed bankruptcy in September 1987, but later came out and said that his donation funds dropped for a couple months but then returned to normal and the bankruptcy was just a ploy for the lawyers for illegal actions. And even though the investigation from Randy proved the falsehood in Peter Popoff, he ended up expanding in 1998 by starting ministries in the inner cities and getting his show on Black Entertainment Television Network, BET, with Don Stewart and Robert Tilton. Here he continued his faith healing and adding in advertisements for his miracle cures and and healing supplements. He also continued his mailing list system. Peter's finances in late 1980 was almost $4 million per year in collections reported by Randy. And in 2003, his ministry revenue was over $9.6 million. And in 2005, it was over $23 million. Also that year, Peter and his wife had a combined salary of $1 million. Also, his two kids ended up receiving $180,000 each. Then in late 2005, Peter's ministry merged with a small church in Farmers Branch, Texas called The Word for the World, and Peter's organization went from a religious nonprofit to a tax-exempt church status, so they didn't have to put out financial statements or file taxes with the IRS or any independent reporting agencies, but some reports have came out showing in 2008 the ministry's revenue was over $35 million and the purchase of a 7,300 square foot $4.5 million house in 2007 in Bradbury, California with a Bentley in 2009 and a new one every couple years. All on paper were are owned and purchased by his church and given to Peter Popoff. But in 2007 Inside Edition, ABC 2020, and Over Newgrounds came out with interviews from people and families who were victims of the mailing list. Some of them were taken for thousands of dollars and from poor families. But despite this, in 2008, Peter was selling Miracle Mana and other allegedly healing products. There was also Blessed Water and Holy Sand, and it offered with it a claim that the water was drawn from a spring near Chernobyl, saying it was perfectly safe to drink and was blessed by Peter himself, but was radioactive water or just bottled spring water in some cases. This ended up making the UK Broadcasting Regulation Ofcom in 2008 to send a warning and fine to Peter for selling products in such a way as to target potential 
vulnerable viewers of your congregation. Then in 2011, Peter was designated by the James Randi Educational Foundation as the recipient of the Piggyus Award for Fraudulent Practices, and I will continue talking about that a little bit more later on in my thoughts and in next week's trail. Two years later in 2013, a Crystal Sanchez, who used to work at Peter's headquarters, came out with a book about what happened there, and these are statements coming from her going forward until I say that there's a break. There are cameras surrounding both buildings. If news vans came by, the receptionist or security guards, whoever sees it, first notifies all the top people letting them know the building is in lockdown. Then, while Sanchez worked in donation processing, she said, I knew about televangelists. I knew there had been scams, but I had never heard about them before. These buildings were essentially big processing centers for cash, checks, and valuables. On my second day on the job opening envelopes, I counted about $30,000 in donations. There were about 20 other women doing the same job, and when partners wouldn't donate as much money, they would cut back on the staff. The real clincher was when they started asking for people's gold trinkets, gold, and heirlooms. And tubs and tubs of gold and stones came in. They would take the stones out, take the gold to be resold, and anything that wasn't valuable was shredded. I was shameful how many shred bins were full to the rim with prayer requests awaiting to be destroyed and never seen again. Then another part of Sanchez's book went into the Miracle Spring Water and was told to her by somebody higher up than her but withheld his identity but to release the information through Sanchez's book. And they are quoted as saying, The distribution of the Miracle Spring Water was subcontracted to a packaging plant in Cedar Grove, New Jersey called the Unit Packet, a family-run firm specializing in packaging those little sample shampoo and pharmaceutical bottles. Water comes from Poland Springs, then they deliver the water right here. Paul is the guy who does the deliveries. Once or twice a month he comes. For Peter Popoff, we do 35 gallon size jugs at a time, once or twice a month. One time they came with a 130 gallon size jug. Then Peter sends his own pre-blessed water in a 16 ounce bottle to add it to all the jugs of Poland Spring. I'm the one who pours the blessed water into the drums. I measure it out and I add it into each of the drums. Now, the final part, getting away from Crystal Sanchez's books, is getting into the mailing letter stuff since the Amazing Randy's group didn't really go into it since they viewed it as a scam right off because of their criteria, which, again, we will discuss next week, and I will talk about that why in my ending part. And if you're a normal person just looking over some of the copies or transcripts of these letters, you would see that it's obviously a scam just from right off, but I still wanted to go over it since it's obviously a scam or at least a desperate and fucked up plea for a way to ask for money from people and most of the time it starts off with a small donation of 13 to 32 dollars but over 20 to 30 letters some people gave thousands of dollars uh, for these prayer requests which were stated before that were just destroyed and the mailing letter for the general prosperity gospel practice 
was built on the process of giving a little bit of money and getting it back tenfold in the future. Also, with a examination of the letter, I picked one done by a Christian organization of the same denomination since without the prosperity gospel involved, Christians tend to believe they're in bullshit. And since most people, like I said, would obviously see this as a scam anyways, and the only people that would be possibly bought into it are Christians, and since they tend to listen and think about their own bullshit, so... First, this was also done by a Mr. Sandy Simpson, a religious studies teacher, and is also a part of the Apologetics Coordination Group. And also, he states out before even going into the letter that he never signed up for the mailing list, but he was sent one of Peter Popoff's letters without his consent. And the front of the envelope also contained Sandy. This letter contains important revelations. Then he opened up to the first page and it starts with sandy our prayer center received your phone call but like i said he never signed up for this at all and it continued to say god showed me some of the hard things you are dealing with for during the next several months i will use my prophetic talents to lead thee into deliverance it also stated starts using daughter as a descriptive term and Sandy said if God is calling me to follow his prophet Peter Popoff I'm afraid that we are not talking about the same God because my God already told me to mark and avoid false prophets Romans 617 and for most of these also he didn't give the actual scriptures and I know the King James version of the Bible I've read it a couple times just like the Torah I'm trying to get through that one and I've also um, read the Quran but for Romans 16 17 it's um, I beseech you brethren mark them which cause division and offensive contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them then the letter states that you will achieve success and get the results you want with asking God and Sandy states on this point saying I thought it worked more like what Matthew 7 7 said and this one I'm pretty sure most of it is ask and it shall be given you seek and ye shall find knock and it shall be upon you or opened unto you opened unto you one of the three and also follows that up with John 15 7 if ye abide in me and my word abide in you ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you and finally he uses first epistle of John 5:14, and this is the confidence that we ask anything accord to his will he heareth us then the first page towards the end was I took your name and anointed it and commanded evil spirits to bow to the power of the Almighty and ends with the grace and favor of God has been restored to you. Sandy then uses Ephesians 2 8 for by the grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourself it is the gift of God and follows that up with second Ephesians of John 1 3 grace be you grace be with you mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ and the Son of the Father in trust of love and something the second page of the letter starts with I see in the spirit of seven secret prophetic events that are on the verge to unfold in your life then goes on to state the 
power of agreement that we release as you and I agree together is the most awesome of all powers. As St. Matthew wrote concerning this power, saying in Matthew 18:19, when to agree it shall be done, and I have been assigned by God to help you so that you can receive God's answer to the special need in your life. Though Sandy, in regards to the prophecy, states to remember that this is supposed to be a personal form letter, and be a personal letter, not a form letter, for when the prophecies come up in a little bit. And with Peter sent by God as his helper, Sandy calls on Hebrews 13.6, so that we may boldly say that the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what men shall do unto me. And then we'll go continue with the letter. And the first prophecy that's listed is one. During the next few weeks in faith I see this influx of money showering down upon you from an unexpected source. I really believe it is somewhere between $1,700 to $1,700. Two, I envision a dramatic turn of events in your life. Three, with the power of provision, something or someone who causes fear, causes hurt, will be removed. Four, yes, travel. Yes, you are about to experience God's power in remote and distant places. And then ends with three more important prophetic events are yet to be revealed to you. Sandy goes in and talks about he wonders why the 17 theme comes up here and also a couple more times that I didn't mention before in the letter but just were like little one-offs of seven and one. And when it comes to prophecy, the first one, and then he also started to wonder about what the pro power of provision was since it's not me mentioned in the Bible at all and just questions the prophecies as being vague and not very direct, very loose wording that can be interpreted a thousand different ways. Then the third page of the letter starts with, In Jesus' name, get a glass of water. I believe that God will let his angels trouble this water as you sleep tonight. Place it by your bedside tonight. Place it the unopened sealed envelope with the water in your pillow. Slip it, it only for tonight. In the morning, take seven sips from the glass in Jesus' name. And according to St. Luke 6.38, you must qualify yourself for a supernatural blessing. Yes, this harvest of great income. Then the letter continues to say, When you open the water packet, anoint your hands for money miracles in Jesus' name. Then anoint a holy, consecrated seed of great harvest offering of $17. No, I don't want you to send $37 or $77. No, send exactly $17 because 1 is the number of the Father and 17 is the number of the Father in perfection. Once you send in your consecrated seed, I will send you the rest of the seven secret prophetic events. Sandy states on the first part of this is purely witchcraft and doesn't understand the angel Peter is referring to since none in God's host would do this. And on the particular quoting of Luke 6, 3, 8, it is correctly that give and it shall be given unto you and good measure pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give unto you your bosom. For with the same measure that ye met with all, it shall be measured to you again. Sandy then continues to say, instead of a instead of a portion of the 
scripture being used falsely to instead use the correct one and that God doesn't need a middleman as Peter. Then Sandy ties the 1 and 7 numbers with the 1700 and 17,000 into being understood from Kabbalah and witchcraft worship, not really Christianity. Then the last thing with the letter are small eye drop-like container of so-called miracle spring water and a mailing return envelope with special instructions for the water and a prayer request form to fill out and a area to put your check in when you mail it back. Now, Sandy doesn't say much on the special instructions or anything else regarding the water except for a couple other things which I will state later on, but I want to read the particular part where it concerns the miracle spring water and what it's claiming to do and where it's claiming to come from and this is from the letter itself. This packet contains water from the spring in the southern Russian area where the pastors and Christians were led by the Holy Spirit to drink. During the horrible Chernobyl nuclear accident, I warn you, something so anointed and sacred can't be taken lightly. As I walked to this very spring through the dark dawn, when I got there, it was like a light from heaven lifted up the entire area. As I knelt trembling under the awesome presence of God, the angel of the Lord commanded me to bring this miracle spring water back for you to use as a powerful point of contact for many miracles in your life. The spring represents the flow of the spirit. No one who drank from this spring died from nuclear contamination. No one who followed divine leading and direction suffered illness. Not one believer suffered harm. Not one believer died. All were miraculously spared. The only thing Sandy really brings up with this is questioning and jokingly, does the water glow in dark in the dark? <laughs> Which I kind of want to know the same thing. And that generally finishes Peter Popoff. He continues today to sell his false miracle cures and his supplements on advertisements and I will link below to uh, some video claims of his advertisements and some other stuff that comes up in John Oliver's segment on mega churches and televangelists, which is hilarious. And again, I wish I was able to link something into the podcast, but I am not to that level yet of editing and knowledge on how to do recording software. The most I can do is add in some music like I can do now and record. But before we finish up this campfire, I wanted to read a statement from Roger E. Olson, a professor of Christian theology of ethics at George W. Truett, a theological ceremony held at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. And this was particularly on the topic of megachurches as a whole. And this is all his quote going forward primarily america's mega church model isn't working my suggestion is that people and i'm talking primarily to evangelical christians be much more suspicious than they tend to be about powerful celebrity spiritual leaders who are not accountable to anyone but themselves and their hand-picked 
forward of what are called yes men. The obsession with celebrities, bigness, entertainment, and success is one of the underlying problems and this obsession has obviously filtered into American religion and sadly even into American evangelical Christianity. But these have become extremely extremely popular in America in the past 25 years. All over the country they have popped up and people are flocking to them. They often offer great religious entertainment and a place to hide if all you want to do is attend church and never be asked to do anything. Also, several of these independent megachurch celebrities, pastors, have fallen hard lately. They have been accused of being overly authoritarian, involved in sexual affairs outside of marriage, sexual harassment, and heresy, and that accountability should be essential when it comes to running megachurches and advise people to stay away from churches led by people with no accountability to anyone outside of their church, especially if they are powerful, famous, and almost worshipped by their congregants. And that ends his quote on megachurches. And personally, when we get into my thoughts, I stand by this statement wholeheartedly and is very well to look at the statement, especially by our Christians when looking at megachurches in particular. But let's get into the next campfire. And this campfire is on my thoughts primarily on the topics of megachurches and the people I talked about. So first, the megachurches as a whole, I view them as primarily a scam since they are big industries of non-taxable income coming in from congregants in huge chunks of money and most of these mega churches preach a prosperity gospel angle which is just a ploy for them to gain more money and they don't really do a lot of charitable work and stuff and again i'm talking about mega churches here which primarily are focused in entertainment stuff and huge congregants and huge online congregations and huge tv congregations and also with the tax exempt status, all churches, not only mega churches, I think should have to pay taxes regardless of what they do since there's supposed to be a separation of church and state, but churches seem to have a special privilege when it comes to taxes, even if they do have certain businesses, which if a business decided to do this, they would have to be taxed if they did something like selling books, CDs, movies, items, instruments, that kind of stuff, that should all be taxed. And I'm not saying like overly taxed churches or anything, just do a fair tax. That should be the bare minimum that you do with churches. Pastors shouldn't have to have income tax exemptions. They should have to pay taxes on their income since they do get a salary from the church. Then with the mega churches, particularly with all the income that they have, they don't seem to help poor communities in their area or except for when they want to have a media stunt or a good publicity moment or a good publicity story for them. And with these churches making so much money to own multiple private jets and multi-million dollar salaries and huge houses, they don't seem to need these tax-exempt status. If they would give away most of their stuff to the poor, drive average cars, don't have planes, flew on commercial planes and all that stuff, then it would be more acceptable. Since, But they indulge in these luxury items and seem to misuse, if anything, the tax-exempt status that they are given to glorify their own wealth and get whatever they want. 
And also, real quick, a friend of mine kind of put it in a really good way, and I kind of view it too this way, that mega churches are like vultures on the poor and average people after they've been robbed by the corporations and banks for most of the money already. And that is kind of true, that these mega churches just seem like vultures that are coming after every little penny that poor, desperate people have to their name that are either sick or in a bad way financially and they are just trying to find any way to get out of it and these mega churches are there claiming that they will get more money if they end up donating the little that they have already. But on to Kenneth Copeland. Um, like I said earlier, he's a very creepy individual when it comes to televangelist and evangelical preachers. Um, with the amount of wealth that he has, in the multi-millions, like hundreds of millions of dollars, and the influence that he seems to have, it seems questionable that he hasn't been investigated before. And with multiple interviews that I've watched with him pertaining to his wealth, his status, his influence, and his money, they all seem very particularly weird. Like, he's very defensive, very angry. And I don't know if it's, it's not really technical, but he got the crazy eyes, basically. That's what I see in every video, even the ones that he's up there preaching and giving the good word and all that bullshit and all that crap. He he's, has that just look in his eyes that he's just going to kill somebody or just go crazy one day. But other than that, like he, he definitely needs to be a person that needs to be either under a microscope or particularly viewed with a lens of something is weird here. <clears throat> Especially if you view the interview that he had with Inside Edition, which I will link below, where he basically attacks this girl that is just trying to get a quick interview and catches him off guard without any bullet points prepared or any talking points prepared. And it seems like you see his real personality there being caught so off guard in that interview, and it's just kind of shocking on how he acts. And then to talk about his planes real quick before I move off of him, no person needs five private jets. If a ministry wants to have a, a plane for any purposes, like if they're using it for relief missions and stuff like that, okay, but privately using a jet just to go talk at conferences is ridiculous. You can get on a commercial plane, first class, even though you should be just in coach or commercial, that would probably be the better alternative than owning a friggin' plane, and Kenneth Copeland has, like I said, five earlier and a private airplane basically airport and in some documents on the uh, senate committee it also states that he has certain uh airport leasing companies i don't know they didn't go into details on that so i don't know if he has like a company that leases planes too and he's making money off that which it would also be a tax exempt status because of his ministry which is absurd but off of him and on to celo cephalo dollar which, at first, I just want to say, his name, if that is his real name, that, that's just is fucking hilarious. Dollar, and he preaches the prosperity gospel to bring in people's wealth and make himself even more wealthy. That's fucking hilarious that he just happens to have that name. And he also happens to be a student of Kenneth Copeland. So you can see why his greedy ways kind of like filter through to be the same as Kenneth, where he wants these planes, he wants this wealth, he wants this status, it seems. And then you have the thing where he asked $300 from each of his congregants so he could buy a Gulfstream. And in one of the clips where it views of him talking about his plane, it's basically like a, a diss track. Like a rapper is dissing people because he wants a plane. 
It's hilarious, and again, I'll link the John Oliver clip, where it's, it's only like 20 minutes long, but he also talks about Cephalo Dollar, particularly that plane thing, which I find hilarious that he ends up bringing it up, because I end up finding that it, that segment like a week at, and yeah, almost a week after I finished up planning out this episode, and I started recording, and I saw that, and I was just, I started laughing when he started making the same du- du- deductions and same correlations that I was and then I do want to touch on his the the domestic abuse charge that he had dropped against him if a person is caught doing something once that most likely isn't the first or the last time he does it like if he got caught with it then with his daughter like abusing his daughter in whatever way because it wasn't specifically stated on what her injuries were so I don't know the specifics on that because I couldn't find it anywhere but if he got caught once and then it was dropped he possibly did it after that and before in prior accounts it just nobody called the cops on him in the accounts before or possibly after but again that's just conjecture because you see that a lot when somebody commits something one time it's probably not the first time that they stepped over that line or stepped over that boundary per se and that's really all i can say on him because all the investigations that came up against him have been dropped there are a lot of fishiness with him he needs to be investigated like kenneth copeland because something with that is very fishy and in all all prosperity gospel people should be looked at in a finer lens just based on the amount of wealth that they seem to curtail in respects to their tax exempt status being repealed and acting like a business at that point especially with their broadcasting network that both kenneth copeland and cephalo dollar prescribe to and cephalo dollar uses kev kevin copeland's broadcasting media to put out his message on tv so on to kent hodvid and with his conspiracy theory stuff i really won't touch on that much because some of his claims with the 9-11 conspiracy and the oklahoma city bombing they do have some claims to merit and i do want to look at them a little bit deeper and a lot of his other stuff i do want to look at a lot more deeper just so i don't give a wrong depiction on some of his theories and some of his leanings though the creationism and all that is just complete craziness in entirety because there's obviously facts that support that dinosaurs and humans were here a lot longer than 6,000 years ago and the Noah's flood thing I will probably do a whole episode on that but that's a reoccurring thing in a lot of cultures and that could just be the ending of one of the previous ice ages on earth nothing miraculous about it just changing state of the earth and it's probably a lot older than what is recorded in most documents and in most records that we have found since certain sedimentary records state that the flood happened I'm thinking it was stated like 50,000 years ago I'm not 100% certain on that and I'd have to look up that to be 100% fact at least this last major flood that we have sedimentary records for and I know there's a lot more evidence reporting that too with like the Grand Canyon sedimentary levels and various other places and to at least touch on his alien stuff because that to me sounded like a project blue beam setup type of thing that he believes in as well as like a little bit of satan thrown on in there because of his religious views but everybody has their own little takes with aliens and there's so many different ones that again aliens are going to be brought up time and time again on other trails and stuff so i'd rather not bring it up i just wanted to make the correlation to the project blue beam type of thing and him just dashing in a little bit of satanism into it or not satanism but satan and then also with his tax income stuff like there are allegations and certain facts and viewpoints that the income tax itself is a 
illegal thing that is going on that the IRS technically can't tax on income tax and a lot of other stuff with license and stuff with the Constitution being saying that you can't charge a license for doing something that like driving and stuff you shouldn't be able to charge for a license for that but there's a lot of people that go back and forth with IRS lawyers and various other stuff and I've seen IRS agents claim that the income tax law is illegal and unconstitutional and I will probably touch on that in another episode on all on itself just the income tax itself and maybe the tax code as a larger system just for information and more of a clarification on how most of that stuff works and that's probably where we will talk about the tax exempt status itself in legal terms but I didn't want to bog it down in this episode with all the legal jargon that comes with the tax exempt status with churches because it's really complicated and has a lot of facets to it that are more like loopholes for churches just to get away with more stuff but overall with him and his trial and his convictions and all that it seemed like Kent himself was just trying to evade taxes in his own form of protest against taxes itself and he knew what he was doing he just didn't do it the right way like a lot of these other evangelical televangelist preachers have done where they can get away with getting huge amounts of wealth and I think he tried to do like what a Jim Baker kind of did but just didn't have the knowledge on how to do it or the back so I think that's where he kind of failed and when he got out of prison and set up his second park he ended up wanting going with a millionaire guy and I think with that he also was able to get maybe legal advice or financial advice on how to do it correctly this time so I don't think this go around his park's gonna get shut down like it was the first time because it seems like he learned from his mistakes and he's hiding it a lot better on his new venture but we'll see because there are certain indictments that he might even go back to jail and again I will keep you updated on that in future episodes but for now all he does is his YouTube channel and like I said I will probably maybe research a lot more into that YouTube channel because I just went through a couple of videos that pertain more towards the past and more towards his release from prison and what he planned to do afterwards and maybe some of his past like background stuff that's all I kind of researched for now because some of the stuff it just it kind of cracked me up with his anti-evolution statements and stuff like that so I think it would be a very funny episode to go through some of his theories and really going through each one of them and giving relevant citing to why they're wrong and all that kind of stuff because it just seemed like it'd be kind of funny to go through some of his videos in the future but now I will talk about Jim Baker and first I will talk about the Jessica Hahn case um particularly with the Jessica the girl real quick her instant celebrity thing is kind of questionable how she went from going from a Christian secretary at a mega church to Playboy model overnight and like I stated earlier she did officially model for Playboy for a time and it just kind of seems to me that it's just a little weird like yeah her it doesn't devaluate her claims at all but it just seems kind of weird that she goes from Christian secretary to Playboy model so it just kind of seems a little weird it might be a little exaggerated on the claims maybe it, it was coercion maybe not full-on rape but it's still putting her in a bad situation where she felt like she couldn't say no so that still is almost as fucking bad just it's a different word and also then with the money thing like that also shows that it, it, it was really bad for Jim to do that and he knew it was wrong for what he was doing and to pay her that much money that kind of shows validity in her statement it just kind of seems 
the Playboy thing just seems weird to me. Like, if you just wanted to go to Radio Host from that, then there wouldn't be that weirdness, but I don't know. The Playboy model thing just kind of threw me off when I was researching, because I just, it came out of, like, left field, because I knew about the sexual scandal thing when I was reading bios of him, but it just didn't go into it, but then when I started researching the actual scandal, I learned that stuff, and it's like, damn. And, again, like I talked about with Cephalodollar, the, the scandal with Jessica, that's the only time he got caught with a girl. He's probably not the first or last secretary or woman in the church that he's had sexual relations with. Possibly they were more consensual, but, again, not the first or last time, probably, that he's done this. It's just the first time that he ended up getting caught. And, again, since he came out of prison, it seemed like he learned from his fuck-ups in the prosperity gospel preaching stuff. And instead of doing that and setting up his whole scam again where he'd get money up front for something and then build it, he got backing through other means and then started selling a prepper kind of stuff, which is a scam all in and it of itself. Like, all those products are pretty shoddy, the ones that I've seen in the past. Like, some places you can get some really quality apocalypse prepping gear type of stuff. And some of it's kind of cool because I even have a zombie axe type of thing that's like a neon type of axe. It's just decoration type of cool thing but other the other places you can get those, that kind of stuff for a lot better quality than what jim baker's sites are offering and for half of the price almost in a lot of cases and a lot of the reviews on his site for his goods aren't good reviews and are flooded out by fake five star to four star reviews which is hilarious that he has to do that just for prepping stuff because those people already buy that stuff outrageously and then to go on with the Morningside location that he set up to with that millionaire. It's not that dissimilar from the Heritage USA that he set up. And it seems like that also is maybe a commune style that he's trying to set up because of his doomsday like preaching type of stuff i think he might be setting up a commune type of lifestyle because it said like shopping mall hotels condos basically a place for his commune to live or congregation to live on this one location that he controls everything from all the materials coming in to the way you pay money and maybe even possibly set up his own currency in the future if he didn't have illness or anything like that going on with the stroke and all that but that could be something that his family line goes down in the future or maybe the person who takes up after Baker ends up doing because sometimes you see that with groups in the future that take one leader goes away and another takes over they slide the group to a radical view in that morning side location could be a view of a future podcast and it's of, of itself for a cult or commune type of place <laughs> and then also real quick all the stuff that he sells from cure-alls to his prepper stuff and all his religious like healing crap on his website all bullshit in my opinion none of that stuff has ever been proven to work and via certain standards and scientific method it will never work and lastly to talk on peter popoff and i really shouldn't have to talk on this asshole that much because he's been proved to be a fraudster his wife's a racist con artist just like him and honestly with all the stuff that the great amazing and now I know passed away recently, the amazing Randy. He shouldn't even be a figure nowadays. He should be locked up for false claims, false advertising, or whatever. Like, it seemed like he definitely broke a law. I don't know what law particularly, because I don't know a lot of them pertaining with this type of stuff. But it seems like just fraudulent claims or something with robbing is 
congregant, something should be done to this man because he's obviously proved that he's not a faith healer and faith healing itself is also bullshit in and of itself. But with the way that the Amazing Randy and his group proved that he's a falsehood, it should come at no surprise that he should be locked up or at least off of the mainstream media where he's not making a lot of money or at all any money from any ministry at all. And I think this is also... Two, I will mention here that the Amazing Randy set up something called the Piggyus Award for Fraudulent Claims, and he had five criteria to put something in there, and I will probably end up going over that in the next trail because I will be doing a whole episode on the Amazing Randy since I just learned about his passing in this episode, and with all the COVID crap and all that stuff at the end of the year and stuff like that, I didn't even know that he passed away, and he was one of the top people I wanted to interview when starting this podcast, and it kind of sucks that he doesn't, he's not still around, because he was a huge skeptic in an investigator in the world of paranormal, and a lot of his movies and interviews I watched growing up and in high school, and it might be one of the reasons I'm such a skeptic, and I always loved seeing him on Penn and Teller's bullshit and stuff, and with that, too, with the Piggyus Award, I think I'm going to try to do something similar to it and kind of in honor of his award, and I will probably still try to keep the name similar if I can. I'll, I'm going to research if I can keep it the same, but it won't be like an official thing, but I'm going to basically call it the Piggyus Hall of Dishonorment, and it will follow the similar five criteria that Randy set up in his, which I will go over next week's trail, but mine will be one scientist who said or did something of the silliest or stupidest thing related to parapsychology to an organization that funds supports or studies useless bullshit three media outlet or media person that reports facts that are the most outrageous bullshit falsehood or just straight lies four will be psychics or other performers who fooled a great number of people and five for the most persistent refusal to face reality in a single person and i will basically come along with those instead of what randy did with it being per year he would pick a certain candidate or a number of candidates instead i will do mine by episode and this episode actually would mark the first episode that i have two people that would go on this list and first, I think I will go with Kenneth Copeland, and he will be the first Piggyus of Hall of Dishonorment title, and I will classify him under probably Category 4. And then, Peter Popoff. He also gets to go into the Piggyus Hall of Dishonorment and bullshit. And he will probably go under 3, or Category 3, 4, and 5, because he's such a special asshole and special bullshitter. And then his mailing list thing, too. Real quick, before I move on from my thoughts area. Don't ever put whatever that little packet of water is on you. If he claims it's from Chernobyl, that's ridiculous. And how he's not been investigated for that alone, or jailed for basically radiation poisoning of people, I have no fucking clue. So either the Chernobyl thing is just a straight-up lie, and it's from the Poland spring water from, like, what, crystal sanchez said or he changed it from the chernobyl water after maybe some lawsuits and stuff that he kept hidden and then he moved it to the poland spring water i don't know but whatever that shit is that he sends you in the mailing thing never open and maybe in the future i might try to do a thing where i receive some of the letters just to give a personal recounting of a current mailing list thing just because i think that would also be hilarious because i find that kind of religious bullshit the most funny because it's so 
fucking long, and it's so fucking hilarious to think people believe so hard in this. Like, the pastors believe so hard that they're telling this bullshit. And I feel sad for the people that are poor that believe it and buy into it and send them money because they're just getting scammed in the end. Flat out, just straight up scam. He's taking your money, and that's about it. And again, like my thought section, I think it's kind of short and sweet for this because I kind of laid out the three fraudsters, and there's documented proof that they are just scum, pieces of shit, and shouldn't be trusted, but yet they still have a wide following for some fucking reason. And then these Tevilangelists have such a fucking wide influence, but all of them just seem like utter scumbags. And in every little interview snippet or clip I've seen of them, because I, wa- I try to watch as many as I could before this, they all seem like they are just out to make a dollar out for themselves or just out for them money and greed purely. And it's not about helping people, even though they try to say that under their teeth, but their actions don't say anything to support them at all. Like, actions speak louder than words, and none of these places do charitable work on any actual level that would be relevant to the amount of money that they're actually getting. The amount of charity that they do would be like a local church level of charity. So, that finishes my thoughts on the megachurches and televangelists. So, now we will get into the mythological minute for this trail. And so, for this week's mythological minute, I look at Iktomi from the Native American tribes of the Cheyenne, Lakota, Dakota, and Sax tribe. Traditionally, Iktomi is a trickster figure and god. His name literally means spider and is sometimes called spider or spider man in English. Also, he is generally depicted as a man but can also shape shift or at least change appearance depending on where he is and who he interacts with. One description goes, he wears brown deerskin leggings with long fringes and tiny beaded moccasins on his feet. His hair was long and black, parted in the middle and wrapped with red bands. His face was painted with red, yellow, and black rings around his eyes. He also had a deer skin jacket with bright colored beads. All of this is also similar to what a Lakota brave would be dressed as. Then, like said, Iktomi was a trickster, but not viewed as good or bad, and was typically compa- companioned to Mesha or the Coyote, other Native American tricksters, and his powers included shape-shifting, using strings to control humans like puppets, the ability to create potions that change or mess with gods, and change gods, the ability to control or gain control over people or gods to do what he wants. Then in Lakota myth, there is a prophecy that Iktomi will spread his web all over the land. Some Native Americans believe this could be in relation to the telephone network system or the internet, the World Wide Web. Also in Lakota culture, he is the patron of new technology, stating he is the one that invented language and gave it to the people. Now to touch on his origins, which are varied with Iktomi. 
He is the son of Enron the Rock, a creator god with the younger brother Aya, who is a storm monster and a powerful god. Then the story splits. One goes, Iktomi was Kasa, the god of wisdom in the beginning, but was stripped of his title and became Iktomi because of his troublemaking. The second is Ektomi is the second manifestation or degradation of Kasa, which hatched from the cosmic egg laid by Wakanaya, the primordial thunderstorm. And that is his origins as Ektomi, the trickster. Now for a short story of Ektomi. One day, Ektomi was walking on a breezy day and a hot day, so he decided to get out his handkerchiefs to wipe the sweat. But while pulling it out, the wind caught it and flew it up to the top of a large tree out of Ektomi's reach. Then a young, strong man in a fine buckskin shirt, leggings, and a beautiful set of moccasins came to Iktomi and Iktomi said hello little brother you look nice today I am sad the young man asked Iktomi why and Iktomi replied because of my handkerchief it blew into the tree and my arms are not strong enough to reach it so the young man said maybe I can help Iktomi said yes yes you're young you're strong you could do it but look at how you're dressed why get your nice clothes all dirty why not I watch them for you? Take them off and pile them up here and go get my handkerchief for me, would you? So the young man agrees, takes off his clothes and piles them by Iktomi and starts up the tree. Part of the way up the tree, Iktomi says, Oh yes, these are nice fine clothes. The young man asks quizzically, What was that? Iktomi replies, Oh, oh, nothing, my boy. Just be careful as you climb. You don't want to fall from there, do you? Higher and higher, the young man climbed, till having to round the tree to get even higher. And as the young man rounded the tree out of sight, Iktomi yelled, Why, thank you! The young man questioned, What? I haven't gotten your handkerchief yet. Iktomi replied, No, for the fine clothes. And he ends up taking the clothes and runs off. So, that ends the short story of Iktomi and his small trickster stuff, and we probably will do an episode related to him with Native American cultures entirely, because there are multiple stories of Iktomi the trickster spider. But that ends our mythological minute, and I will get into the outro. So, that has been the Great Journey Podcast, and I've been your trail guide, Luke Keish. If you want to follow us, we are on most podcasting services. I have just learned that we are on the iTunes podcasting service as well now, so please view us there. If you want to follow us, you can find me on the Facebook app, and then we are also on, we have an anchor page, which will be linked down below. And multiple times I said before that I will have three different videos linked down below for this trail which are informative to the specific people that I talked about today. As well as all the resources I had for this trail will be linked down below for anybody who want to view the original sources or go even further into the research that I have done myself.
If you want to donate, please go to the Anchor page and please support me if you want. Uh, this is the one-man operation, and it, any support would help out at this stage. And next week will be a episode on The Amazing Randy since he passed away in October, and I want to do a tribute episode to him and all the greatness that he ended up accomplishing in his life. And that's all that needs to be covered for this trail. And this has been the Great Journey Podcast with your trail guide, Luke Keish. And until you guys join me again, I'll be here stoking the fire. So please come back and join me for another trail. Goodbye. Welcome all your bastard actions back home.